The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to a new season of Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. That's from Article 3, Section 3 of the United States Constitution. Treason is the only crime defined in the Constitution. But even though the founders defined it, that didn't stop Americans from arguing over what it meant or who it applied to during and after the Civil War. Some of those arguments were more than a little surprising, as our guest William A. Blair discovered when writing, With Malice Toward Some, Treason and Loyalty in the Civil War Era. We'll talk with him today on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. It's the first show of our 11th season. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, uh, here on the third floor of the Brewster Building, on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, a part of the University of North Carolina system, but not speaking for UNC or ECU or the History Department or anyone but myself, as always. My guest, likewise, will speak only for himself. So here we are. It is the first show of the 11th year of the the podcast so old that it predates the word podcast. We didn't know what to call it when it started 
back in 2004. Uh, it's good to be back after a pleasant summer away, lining up guests for the fall and winter season. Had a wonderful uh, Civil War tour of Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania with Matterhorn Travel back in June. Uh, hello to anyone uh, from the, the tour bus who's listening tonight. <clears throat> we had a, a really interesting time. It's now good to be back here at East Carolina, uh, back in the teaching saddle, teaching the introductory uh, U.S. history survey uh, from the beginning of time to 1877 in the fall semester. Uh, always pleasant. And uh, it's a, a new football season. The Pirates of ECU won big in their first game. My own alma mater, University of Michigan, won big over Appalachian State. Apparently, those two teams have played before, but I don't recall anything about that. Uh, and the Detroit Tigers are fighting for a playoff spot. So lots of reasons for uh, someone like me from the Wolverine State to want to watch Sports Center at the end of the day. At work here at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, the History Department chugs along. We now have a new dean in our College of Arts and Sciences. We have a new interim provost uh, above him. And we have the usual round of draconian budget cuts administered by the legislators in Raleigh. But even with all the uh, bad news, and, and it was bad this year, I had to uh, make my bones as an administrator, something I didn't want to do after seven years, and actually let people go this fall semester. Uh, so uh, it, it is bad uh, financially. But nonetheless, with the new people in place, uh, there's a sense of new energy, of determination that if we're going to get out of this, we're going to do it on our own, and we're going to find a way to do it. So we're looking forward to the new semester. I'm looking forward to a new year, Civil War Talk Radio. My office is uh, looking forward to it with a beautiful new photograph on the wall that I got uh, over the summer from uh, Mason Dixon Photography, based in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, Ron Belgrad is the photographer and business owner there. And he took this uh, really uh, fascinating photograph of the inside of the barn on the Spangler Farm at Gettysburg, where it turns out the National Park Service stores some of their extra ordnance. So uh, it's a, a really uh, unusual picture of cannons in a barn, uh, very handsome. And I obtained it. This is all an unsolicited plug, I should say, for Mason uh, and Dixon Photography. You can find them on the internet, uh, probably with .com after that, Mason Dixon Photography. Uh, but Mark Gaffney was kind enough to send this to me. He is, of course, our webmaster, the person who keeps things going at www.impedimentsofwar.org, where you can find out who's going to be on the show week after week. And uh, speaking of that, let's find out who's going to be on the show in the weeks ahead. We've got, uh, let's look at the list here, Chuck Veit, or Veet, I may be saying it wrong. Chuck will set me straight next uh, Wednesday. He's the president of the Navy and Marine Living History Association and talks. Uh, will talk to us about uh, his, his book, A Dog Before a Sailor, or was it a soldier? I don't have it in front of me, alas. Uh, a soldier, it must be. Uh, a book of fascinating tidbits of Civil War naval history. Uh, we've got uh, Jason Rowe, the webmaster of the award-winning project Civil War on the Western Border, 
which again, another internet uh, piece you can find. On the 24th of September, John Barr, author of Loathing Lincoln, an American tradition from the Civil War to the present. Then on October 1, Rick Sowers joins us, talk about his new book, The Fishing Creek Confederacy. Uh, he also has written some biographies. He may share some of that with us. On the 8th of October, Keith Hardison is the director of North Carolina Historic Sites. October 15th, Brigadier General Jack Mountcastle retired, uh, who leads battlefield tours and has led them and has been the uh, in charge of military history for the Army, will be with us. On the 22nd of October, Jamie Malinowski, uh, the the uh, 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 what's what's the term he uses? The blog guy for New York Times uh, will be with us and talking about his new book on uh, Commander Will Cushing, not Alonzo Cushing, but his brother Will, a daredevil hero of the Civil War. And that gets us well into October. There's more after that, but we'll uh, just let you know we've got a, a good season of Civil War talk radio ahead. Lots of things to uh, to hear. And lots of things to read when you want to buy the books that you hear about, including tonight's book. Go to impedimentsofwar.org and go to Amazon through there, and the click-through will send a few pennies our way to help keep the lights on. While you're at impedimentsofwar.org, there's the PayPal donation button for the Civil War Talk Radio Book and Libation Fund. It's not tax-deductible. It's not a charity. I am simply taking your money for my personal use to use for books for the show or bandwidth for the website. But if I want also for a refreshing beverage or repairs to the minivan or unwise investments in speculative startups, I can do anything I want with it. Uh, I hope that won't dissuade you from sending your donations to me so I can have more money. Well, enough about uh, the website, the donations, and all these other things. Uh, Tonight, we have a fascinating book to talk about. It's called With Malice Toward Some, Treason and Loyalty in the Civil War Era. The author is William A. Blair of Penn State University. Bill, are you there? I sure am. I'm glad to be here. And by the way, I'm teaching the first half of the survey, too. And my school, Penn State, had a pretty good win this last weekend, so we have some things in common. We do. A, a late field goal for uh, for the Nittany Lions, very good thing to have. Uh, how, how, are, how are you finding the students this year? Any noticeable changes, uh, not year to year, but over the last five years, maybe? Uh, no, uh, they just always look younger to me, that's all. <laughs> um, that's uh, a product of me getting older, I believe. Uh, I, th- I think it must be. I, I had a student uh, this week ask me after I, I had the obligatory introductory material. Then I start lecturing on the uh, the uh, pre-Columbians, and I get a uh, the question, which I've never actually gotten so baldly before: Do we have to know this stuff as I'm talking? <laughs> Is it and, on the uh, exam? That's the that's what they. <laughs> it's what they want to know, and. You know, it's not a totally illegitimate question. Uh, you can probably live a long life not knowing which explorers came in which order, but uh, but yeah, I'm not there for my health. Uh, the, the, these facts are to help you learn how to think critically and organize complex mm-hmm. stories into uh, 
coherent fact patterns. And uh, it's like you don't have to lift weights, but if you want to be a good player, you got to get strong. You got to. You don't have yeah. to know every fact, but if you want to be a good thinker, you got to practice sometime. Anyway, yeah. I'm pre- preaching to the converted. Um, so, well, you're at Penn State. You guys have a, a remarkable Civil War program there. Uh, is Mark Neely still there? Did he just retire? Uh, Mark Neely has just retired, but we have just um, hired Ari Tillman, whose book has won three major prizes on the Sand Creek Massacre during the Civil War. Ah, so from from strength to strength. Mark was my predecessor at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, so I followed in his footsteps there. I still haven't won my Pulitzer Prize, but I'm I'm working <laughs> on that. He's an amazing historian and a, and a wonderful colleague. Yes, absolutely. And Carol Reardon, is she? Mm-hmm. Uh, she's she, still here, and she's doing great stuff. She just published a wonderful guidebook for the Battle of Gettysburg. That's my plug for her with UNC Press and. It's uh, probably the standard uh, for the business right now. It, it, I used it on the bus tour I, I led this summer uh, when I was at Gettysburg, and it's really, really good. Uh, I, I, I will second that. Now, you are the director of the Richards Center. What, what does that involve? Uh, the Richards Civil War Center is primarily a research uh, center. Uh, we do do some outreach, but uh, our main mission is to uh, create new scholarship on the Civil War and to create opportunities to do more on the Civil War era. Uh, for example, last summer, uh, we created a conference on Reconstruction, and we'll have a volume coming out with UNC Press uh, from that uh, conference. So we're trying to always push the envelope and trying to find new discoveries in this particularly fascinating era. You... So is, is the center also responsible for the, the journal of uh, the Civil War era? Yep. Uh, we are the home for the journal of the Civil War era, and I'm also the editor of that journal. That, when that, that started, I'm going to guess, like five years ago now? Uh, the is first it? volume year was 2011, so you're absolutely on target. We're in our fourth volume year, and frankly, I have all material uh, to carry us through to 2015, which is our fifth volume year. What, when that first came out, my thought, and I'm guessing that of others in the field might have been, we've already got uh, the the venerable Civil War History Journal, uh, many years at Kent State University, which is an academic journal. You know, some of our listeners may remember magazines like North and South or Civil War Times Illustrated, but also there are academic journals, no pictures, just lots of text, lots of book reviews. And we've got Civil War history. Why did we need Journal of the Civil War Era? Well, it was my impression, and that of UNC Press, which is the publisher of the journal, that we really weren't bringing all the people to the table who we thought uh, fell under the umbrella of Civil War Era. And the era is very important. It's not just four years of war. It's, of course, slavery, abolition, coming of war, reconstruction, and so on. And um, it just felt like we weren't getting all the people who could identify themselves as Civil War-era historians into conversation with each other. And that was really our main mission. It seems like this is a particularly uh, you know, dynamic moment in Civil War scholarship, more maybe than in the last 
10 years where there are just changes taking place. Some of it is broadening, looking at other areas. Uh, but you touch on this in the introduction to your book, that there's a sort of neo-revisionist movement underway of people mm-hmm. who are critical of the Civil War, not regarding it as a triumphal moment of uh, the growth of freedom and national unity, but uh, but maybe not such a good thing after all. Uh, yeah. Well, it's funny to me. I'm not sure how to gauge this, but I'm I'm not sure that public um, participation and anticipation of the Civil War may or may not be on decline. I can't really tell that, but I don't know that it's actually going stronger. However, on the other hand, the scholarship is actually taking off in new directions, as you just said. There is new revisionism, which is basically taking a more... Uh, not jaundiced view, that's, that's probably not the right word, but um, a more critical look at the Civil War and seeing and questioning, I should say, whether violence of that kind of scale uh, was a good thing and was necessary. Um, they also tend to um, wonder if there is a grand narrative of the Civil War that can be creative, and they also wonder if really it was all worth it after all. Um, I tend to see in my own work the less of a triumphalist narrative. However, I, I do think it was worth it. I think that we needed to fight that fight and that there were some good things that came out of it, especially the end of slavery and new ideas about freedom. I, I wonder how much of that is generational. I share the view you just expressed very much, and I, I wonder if if some of that is... Uh, people who did not live through any part of the civil rights era, but did live through some of the more futile wars of the 90s and, and 21st century, uh, you know, importing their experiences onto their their mm-hmm. knowledge of the Civil War, just as as previous generations did in their time. Uh, your guess is as good as mine, and uh, that's not necessarily a bad hypothesis. I also think we're always searching for new things to write about. And, uh, you know, uh, for a long time we wrote about the progressive tradition in the Civil War. And now it just seems like we're discovering the darker side. And uh, there are plenty of darker sides to discover. Um, But I also think my colleague Mark Neely wrote a pretty darn good book on the limits of destruction um, and tried to show that uh, this war still remained fairly conventional and did not uh, tip the scales toward uh, an outrageous kind of conflict. I I agree with that as well. I think Mark is is right on that point. We're going to take a short break now and come back and talk about what you found uh, in your study of treason and loyalty in the Civil War. Uh, The book's title we're talking about tonight is With Malice Toward Some. Our guest is William A. Blair. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with William A. Blair, author of With Malice Toward Some, Treason and Loyalty in the Civil War Era. Uh, Bill, this is a really fascinating book that is uh, about a lot of things. Uh, Every chapter really gives us a new picture of the question of treason and loyalty. Uh, But if we start at, at the beginning... I guess the fundamental question is, how can rebelling against the United States not be treason, yet it could not have been treated as treason? You couldn't execute every prisoner. I'm, I'm, I'm already making it harder than I want it to be. Uh, well, what <laughs> well, is treason? You're already making it as hard as it was uh, during the time period. Um, talk about it's, that. It's a real conundrum. Um, when we entered the Civil War, the only real legal apparatus we had to combat what was happening, uh, meaning that the South was succeeding, would have been treason. There was no conspiracy laws. There was nothing else that could substitute for it. So our principal way of thinking about uh, life back then and about threats to the nation came through the apparatus of treason. Yet, as you so well described at the top of the program, it's a very limited um, crime and punishment according to the Constitution. And then as you get a little further along, John Marshall um, added his own stamp to it and in treason discussion said that in treason there are no such thing as accessories. Everyone is a principal. What does that mean? That means, oh my God, as soon as you have one person like Jefferson Davis guilty of treason potentially, 
the lowliest private in the army is also guilty of treason. And then, well, you can't stop there. What about all the people who supplied the Confederate Army? What about all the civilians who uh, may have aided and abetted the enemy in a very direct way? So it created a real problem. You know, how do you segregate it? How do you just fight or, or, excuse me, prosecute the most deserving when, in fact, your law says you can't do that? So, I mean, one answer would be, well, then don't apply this measure at all. But from the very start of the war, people use the word treason freely on both sides. Right. Uh, and one of and your main points... They use the uh, word, but... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I say it's one of your main points, is that it, this isn't just a legal issue, but uh, a political and social issue. This is yeah. how ordinary people I, act. I think what was most startling to me, there were two things startling to me. One was... Um, the amount of the interference in elections, and I'll hold that for later. Mm-hmm. But the, the other thing was just the very fact that how important and um, decisive was uh, the, the only thing I can think to call it is popular constitutionalism, meaning uh, people at that time did not concede to Supreme Courts and to legal experts what the Constitution really meant. And they went about their business applying notions of treason that were not constitutionally sanctioned, but that they found eminently satisfying, and uh, it it involved a lot of dirty business uh, that was conducted during the war. Well, it's one thing for ordinary citizens to just use the word treason to describe people whose policies they don't like. Not too long ago, a, a pundit... Used uh, wrote a book with that title to say all that person's political enemies were traitors. Uh, you know, we can have hysterical overstatements like that, and that really doesn't affect anything. But you just said there's dirty business. That implies it's not just ordinary citizens, but people with some kind of power are, are applying this definition. Oh, absolutely. One of the uh, key agents for this and for social change in general that I think is still not quite appreciated enough for the Civil War, is the military. Um, we know that John C. Fremont operated on his own uh, in invoking treason to free slaves. We know that uh, David Hunter did the same. We know that Lincoln had to step in and stop both of them uh, from going forward. But, you know, uh, that's part of the um, dynamic that I saw in, uh, in all of this in the book, which is people often operated, especially in the military, on their own understanding of treason, whether it matched uh, the federal government or even their bosses. Um, They often were out in front of the federal government and Lincoln on doing these kinds of things uh, out in communities. You talk a lot about, uh, and there there are so many aspects here that that, that people might not have thought about, uh, let me just pull one out. The the idea of treason as a way of punishing uh, rebels comes out early in the war with uh, the prize cases, with the, the case of captured Confederate privateers, where they are violating what seems to be, uh, you know, they're committing treason. They're attacking the, the American flag and the American government. But that runs afoul of international law. Uh, and you bring up the whole issue of whether international law has any 
standing in this case, whether it's actually above the Constitution, possibly in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does well, that work out? One of the, the, the surprise for me there was the extent to which uh, international law was used uh, by the Union, even by Lincoln, during the Civil War. We tend to think of us as this hermetically sealed nation uh, who created our own Constitution and that it was sufficient uh, to get us through whatever crisis we wanted. I think there's a large amount of truth to that. However, what I also saw was that there was an immense amount of international practices, international precedents, and so on, that actually informed, especially the Supreme Court, even Lincoln, and many other policymakers who could look at, you know, what were the habits of warfare throughout the Atlantic world in, century, in, in excuse me, the decades leading up to the Civil War. And those things actually mattered. And it wasn't just the Constitution, meaning the domestic law, that factored into how they operated against treason. It were these international ideas that uh, told them they could do a lot of things that we might not think might be sanctioned by our Constitution. Now, it struck me that... It- in, there were two ways that people use international law. One was as a limit on what the government can do, and the other was as a source of power for what the government could do. Because you have people saying, uh, now that we are at war, the, we have two belligerent sides, not a separate nation in the South, but a, but a separate belligerent. Now we are limited by international law against committing atrocities and so on, but otherwise the gloves are off. The Constitution doesn't hold us back. Then you've got other people saying... Well, actually, we're limited by international law from doing what we would otherwise do, such as uh, execute people for treason, because if we do that, now we're saying privateers are not okay, and we just fought the War of 1812 to say they were. Uh, So international law seemed to cut both ways. Yeah. What you're pointing to, I think, is is, uh, a tension that exists uh, within the book, which is there's a high amount of interpretation going on here. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is that both sides are plausible. Um, they can make rational, legal, justifiable arguments that can take us in both directions. One in the, in the area toward punishment and taking whatever you want. The other in terms of leniency and, in fact, control and just use of power. Um, it really, there was a lot of latitude at this time, and both sides engaged in incredible amounts of debate during the conflict. It, it, because if you're going to apply international law, and that, that itself implies that, that there are two nations, or at least two parties, there's something other than a domestic riot going on here. Yeah. Uh, so even that... And that brings us back to the question I started with. How do you treat the rebels as committing treason on one hand, but being citizens on the other, uh, having the rights of belligerents? Well, uh, you know, this is where international law functions quite nicely, because there's an old book that was called The Law of Nations. It was published in the 18th century, and it was by a guy named Emeril de Vattel. And he was kind of the most famous authority uh, for this, uh, at the time of the 19th century in the Civil War. He's quoted widely in Congress, um, quoted widely in various other uh, areas. And basically he said, um, you should conduct civil war 
is a war between nations. Because, and here's what you said, um, it, 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 to do anything differently would lead to barbarity and outrage. And if you went down that road, you wouldn't exchange prisoners, you would kill people, you would um, hang the pirates, you would just create a situation that was not only abysmal, but uh, terrible for everyone concerned. But, he said, in this kind of war, in this civil war, if you treat them as nations, that does not um, end you considering them as citizens who, after the war, you can go after, and you can try for treason, and you can do whatever you want to them. So with a real, you can have your cake, and you can eat it too. Uh, although, after the war, we don't see mass executions. We'll, we'll, we'll touch on that a moment later. But the idea of restraint based on international norms uh, you know, gets back to, again, one of the, this underlying theme you have that uh, law is not just made in courtrooms or executive uh, uh, meetings, but works itself out in, in everyday encounters. Uh, one of the fascinating things that you describe that, that I'd not seen much written about elsewhere is the mechanism of the, the provost marshal of the mm-hmm. Union Army. Uh, or I should say marshals, because there's not, it's not, there's not just one system. There, there are multiple there layers. That, talk about that. Everybody listening to the show has heard the term. We all read Civil War stuff, and you get to the part, there's provost marshals. They're the guys keeping people from retreating in battle, but they're also arresting Clement Vallandigam. Yeah. Who are these guys? <laughs> I have to tell you, this was one of the most vexing parts of the book, and it was a part of the book that I didn't even know I was going to write until I was hmm. digging into it, starting to write, and suddenly realized, I don't know who these people are, and I do not know how they got their power, what they are doing, and who are the superiors to them, and, and who's getting orders here. So what I finally, and I hope to God I got this right, because it really was something that I had to try to very much untangle, and uh, there was no other place I could go to find uh, guidance for this. But at any rate, let me try to give you a thumbnail. Um, the first provost marshals that occurred were civilian provosts. And what that means is the federal government had nothing in place. I mean, we had no homeland security. We had no Federal Bureau of Investigation. We had nothing uh, to handle a domestic crisis like we faced in the Civil War. So one of the things we started doing as a federal government is drafting civilians, uh, just people uh, who we thought could help our cause. So those are civilian purpose. Uh They often function in communities like Baltimore, Maryland in general, in Ohio, and so on. So that's one layer. They're not really military. They're sort of in between uh, civilian and military. And then, of course, you have two other kinds of purpose within the military. Uh, one is the departmental commands. And departmental commands means that every the, the, uh, the United States was carved up into various districts, departments. And each department had an officer in charge, and they had their own bureaucracy, and they had their own purpose marshals whom they appointed and who reported to them. Third, pardon me, I'm getting winded, but <laughs> this gets uh, almost ridiculous. There was um, um, army purpose marshals, and these were provosts who followed the army, period. They were 
under the control of the general of an army, and they were worried primarily about security of their forces. So their geographic location varied depending on where the army moved. Finally, there are the provost marshal generals or provost marshals that occurred with the conscription legislation of 1863. And these were men who were put into every community, um, every congressional district, excuse me, uh, throughout the Union. And their sole purpose was to enforce the draft, regulate the draft, and try to uh, round up deserters or people who were interfering with that mechanism. I, I wish I had not discovered this, to be honest. It was just like, oh, my God, what a complicated morass. And then if you go to Missouri and you add the state officials who ran the government there and they created their own state militia, they had their provost marshals too. And guess what? They were all the provost marshals out there were arresting each other, uh, even. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, when I started looking at the system, it led me to believe, oh my God, um, you know, the stuff that we talk about in the Civil War with centralized government and the tendency towards centralization, all true. But, oh, my God, is it a mess at the local level. And there is an incredible amount of federalism still alive down there. So, so you've got state and local officials, police forces such as they are, uh, yep. People representing state and local governments. You've got these multiple layers of federal provost marshals operating. Yep. Uh, it it really it does highlight that 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 no one quite knows what's going on. And you know that was the, the term provost marshal is one I've I've seen a thousand times in reading about the Civil War era, and never stopped to spend too much time on. And your your chapter you know, stopped me in my tracks to say okay. This is this is a much more complex uh, situation than uh, than anyone has really taken time to lay out before, and it does uh, you know give us pause as to how uh, as to what's going on. So, just a couple of minutes before we take another break, one other thing that really fascinated me uh, was the interaction between social norms and laws that you might. It might be illegal to uh, to openly support the Confederacy in a northern community, but it's also customary not to for men not to harass women or for uh, the clergy to have independence to preach without being uh, arrested, and yet these turn into conflicts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's really interesting to me is that there was. No cornerstone of what we consider our foundations for freedom that didn't suffer a few cracks during the Civil War. Um, you know, church and state we tend to think of as having a sacrosanct border, but it did not back then. A minister could get arrested if he did not say the prayer for the president. Uh, his own congregation could excoriate him or threaten to hang him if he espoused political positions that were contrary to what the rest uh, believed. You move over to the, to the press, and you think that the Fourth Estate is safe? And the answer is, of course, no. Um, at least a uh, hundred-some uh, presses were attacked by mobs during the Civil War, destroyed or shut down, and at least 300 editors 
uh, had their uh, either newspapers depressed or themselves put into prison. Um, so church and state, uh, freedom of speech, um, one of the things that really occurred to me as I started doing this work is that what we tend to take as freedom of speech and the values of that is really a much more contemporary phenomenon. It's really dated to World War I. Uh, the uh, real court cases involving free speech don't occur until that time. Back in during yeah, the Civil gonna, War era... just want to interrupt because we're at a break time, and we'll come back sure. and talk more about this. Uh, so we'll return in just a minute with more of With Malice Toward Some, Treason and Loyalty in the Civil War Era, with our guest William A. Blair. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Bill Blair. He's the author of with malice toward some, treason and loyalty in the Civil War era, a very handsomely produced, I will say, new book from the University of North Carolina Press. They do a nice job uh, with their physical production. The The font is pleasing and large enough for me to read uh, with glasses, and just good-looking book, uh, but fascinating in its content, uh, especially as we've been talking in the first two segments about the complex definitions of treason as it applies to rebels uh, and whether one can actually apply it and, and who makes these decisions and uh, really lots uh, lots of angles to this. 
Bill, one of the th- things you wanted to you started to mention earlier, and I want to get back to uh, that you said surprised you doing the research was the amount of interference with the electoral process that took place during the Civil War. And yeah, talk uh, about I guess that. I got a really good education on the political culture of the 19th century. Um, I really never had heard and encountered the extent of military interference in elections, especially throughout the border states. And it was endemic. Uh, 1862 on through into 1864. And uh, fortunately, there were some smarter people than I, like Richard Franklin Bensell, whose book on the 19th century American ballot, uh, understood that there were some incredible elections that were tipped by uh, soldiers going to the uh, precincts and screening who would vote. Um, back then, of course, it was easy to because you, your vote was public. You came there with pre-printed tickets or color-coded tickets. You put them into segregated ballot boxes by party. Everybody knew how you were going to vote. Um, and I was just stunned uh, by the extent to which the federal military um, dictated elections. They uh, probably um, enabled the Kentucky governor to win election, and the Kentucky governor at that time was favorable to Lincoln, and they were responsible for perhaps uh, four out of five uh, congressional races in the border states in 1863. And what stung me the most is that why this isn't more generally known uh, in the histories of the war. It's out there in, in uh, the discrete literature, the monographs, and so on, uh, but not part of our general narrative. I suppose, uh, to the extent we think about interference of the political process, the, the dominant narrative is that of Lincoln not suspending the presidential election of 1864. Absolutely right. Uh, and, and saying that you know elections must go on even in wartime. But you're suggesting that at lower levels... The elections went on, but not without undue influence from right. soldiers. But, but not everywhere. And, and it's real important um, to, to remember that. It's not just uh, laissez-faire and using that tactic everywhere. Uh, it really was pretty targeted and really very much in the border states, meaning the loyal states, the slave-owning states, who remain loyal to the Union. And these were critical states. Uh, politically, uh, they could tip the scales for emancipation. Uh, strategically, you lose them, and you you really make the war that much more problematic, and you could lose it. So it's understandable why there was such a concern uh, in these areas. And as I started doing the work, I started realizing, you know, my understanding of elections is not their understanding of elections. There was much more of what we would call chicanery, intimidation, and so on, that went on during peacetime. And um, when you add the Civil War to it and the, uh, the health of the nation, the potential death of the nation, I certainly can understand why they would do what they did. Uh, it is, is a, a, a different era altogether. Now, as the war comes to an end, the possibility of actually punishing traitors becomes... Uh, more real or different. At least you, you eliminate now the chance of retaliation if you execute uh, some Confederate official. How, 
how did that play out? Uh, why, why didn't we see mass uh, treason trials? The short answer is that politically and legally, it just didn't play to the interests of the nation. Uh, politically, um, you know, the, if you want to have a union, you're going to have to have former Confederates reach across the bloody chasm and shake hands and, and create a new nation. So, you know, if you start killing people and creating mass executions, that ain't going to achieve uh, what you want. Legally, there were some real problems uh, that really became almost insurmountable. Um, if you, everybody knows that if you create a, or if you, excuse me, commit a crime, you're supposed to be tried in the area into which you committed the crime. And in this case, uh, the best legal minds of the country and the attorney general decided that if you're going to execute Jefferson Davis or try him at least, you got to do it in Richmond or in Virginia, uh, where the crime was committed. Now, getting a jury poll <laughs> that was going to be mm. favorable uh, created quite a challenge, especially during early Reconstruction, when you did not have black participation uh, in this. And almost everybody was going to be a former Confederate. And the other aspect of it is that, and again, this is something that startled me, I always thought state rights was just a Southern phenomenon, but it wasn't. Um, people even in the North uh, bought into the notion that uh, there was such a thing as state sovereignty. And there was a very profound belief that if the South, once the South seceded, the people within those states had to obey uh, the sovereignty of their states. And it really prevented a lot of momentum for um, mass hangings. So very interesting that there was really plenty of vengeance. People wanted to try and convict uh, some of the key Confederates. But politically and legally, it just just couldn't happen. Uh, that takes us back to the beginning of the war. You, you start by talking about John Brown's execution for treason. Uh, He's tried in Virginia. He commits his, his crime in Harper's Ferry, Virginia, and then is tried and executed. But it's for treason against the state of Virginia, not against the yeah. United States. So unless the state of Virginia is sovereign, you can't commit treason against, you know, I can't commit treason against Pitt County here in North Carolina. Uh, no, but back then you could commit treason against the state. Uh, Doris Rebellion in the 1840s. Uh, mm -hmm. That was state treason. Um, in, in Rhode Island. Uh, in Rhode Island, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And um, if you look around the horn during 1860s, you, uh, Pennsylvania, for example, amended this law uh, to expand its treason law against the state of Pennsylvania. So there was actually a mindset back then that you could commit treason against the state and not a federal government. And that then raises the question of, uh, and one of Brown's defenses was, I, I'm not a Virginian. How can I commit treason against the state I'm not from? Right. Uh, and it, it, it reminded me on a, a very different scale when I speak at Sons of Confederate Veterans uh, groups locally. They will start with the uh, pledge to various flags, one of which is North Carolina has its own state pledge. And I was caught by surprise the first time they did that at a meeting. And I've since learned to anticipate it and sort of quietly, you know, step aside or sit down or, or just don't say anything. 
because I'm not a North Carolinian, uh, I, I can't. I'm a Michigan man. I can't just go pledging to whatever state I happen to live in at the moment. Uh, that would be wrong. Uh, but Brown travels to Virginia, and they say, "Okay, you're temporarily a Virginian. That's good enough. You're a citizen. We're going to execute you for treason." Mm-hmm. But the uh, the provisions in the law of Virginia actually help the cause. And, and let, let me back up one step and just say, first mm-hmm. of all. Buchanan doesn't want any part of this. <laughs> He's quite no. happy to let a state take care of this rather than get the federal government involved. But the second factor was that uh, the Virginia Constitution, which dealt with treason, did make it unlawful and treasonous to create a, a government within Virginia. And Brown had committed a, had created a government. Yeah, uh, I forget which territory where he was when mm-hmm. he did this, but prior to coming to Virginia... Uh, he created his own constitution, and there it was. This is the government that John Brown uh, wanted to have. So it was a fait accompli that he was going to be convicted and killed. In the long aftermath of the war, you go all the way through Reconstruction into the 20th century, uh, you close with a, a description of, of people uh, resisting the reunion and reconciliation of the early 20th century, that there are still some Union veterans or their descendants who continue to use the word treason and traitor to describe those who fought against the United States uh, in the 1860s, but they they lose the verdict of history that, that uh, the Confederacy becomes uh, romanticized and uh, uh, and cleansed of any any taint of treason for most Americans. Is that explicable to you? Uh, yeah, I think it's generational. Um, the oldest veterans and the older veterans, they clung to a lot of their beliefs until their time came. Uh, then the new generation was not necessarily as invested in it and had not the same experiences, both on the battlefield and in the halls of political struggle. So it's not actually that unusual to watch the next generation come along and be much more forgiving and not thinking so hard about um, the transgressions that occurred between both sides uh, in the past. The, uh, one of my graduate school colleagues, Fran McDonald, wrote about uh, uh, Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee getting their citizenship back in the yeah. 1970s. Uh, as, uh, That's a good article, uh, by the way. Isn't isn't it? Yeah, it, it's a, a, an amazing reflection of the Vietnam era draft dodger reconciliation imposed upon uh, what happened in the 1860s. Uh, but the, the, again, it reflects what you just said that that as the generations pass, we have new perspectives on uh, what happened in the Civil War era and new ways of uh, thinking about it. So we get new books like this one, which is really uh, uh, just a fascinating piece of work that, that opens our eyes. One thing people ask me regularly uh, is, you know, how is how are there more books to read about the Civil War? How is there anything new to be said 150 years later? I'm sure you get that question as well. Uh, but this is a great example uh, at a time when we're trying to figure out uh, the, the nature of, of loyalty and the, the extent of federal power into the individual uh, individual's life or the local community's life, uh, we're still wrestling with some of these same questions. To go back and look at how these 
people did this in a way that no one's really done before is is just fascinating and and very worthwhile. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, and, I think. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I don't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, I never stop someone when they're saying good stuff. But <laughs> uh, but no, we've got a, just just a minute left, so I'll turn the floor back to you. Oh, just what you said has always struck me. I think we tend to think ourselves as unique when we're debating contemporary issues such as combating terror, conducting surveillance on civilian cell phones, or imprisoning suspicious people in Abu Ghraib and definitely without charges. But, you know, the Civil War, while it didn't have cell phones, it involved many, many more kinds of these issues and on a much larger scale, and no place was sacrosanct not newsrooms, not churches, and certainly not the ballot box. Nor, nor uh, uh, people's private homes, as, as you stressed. Even gender right. roles fall, fall to this. Well, listeners, you'll want to read this really, really interesting book with malice toward some, treason and loyalty in the Civil War era. The author is William A. Blair. Bill, thanks for joining me on Civil War Talk Radio. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.